The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Pretty good, Father. Yeah, Great good to, be to back. see you. Yeah. Uh, Father, I see you have a uh, list of prayer requests in front of you tonight. Should I can begin with those? Yes, of course. It's only a small small sampling of the, of the overall uh, Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list, but uh, I would just mention once again uh, the request for prayers for Livia Lorenzano, for Marion Shahan, uh, Tom Wright, and young Noah Lawson, too. For Bernie Kunkel, who is back uh, in the hospital again now after uh, being sent home following the heart attack and stroke that he had, so he's suffering. And uh, Joseph Percher, Cliff Hogan, Donna King, and as I say, so many others. Um, but always I ask for prayers for our country, which is in very serious trouble right now. Uh, and also our state of Ohio, which just today had to vote on a very serious issue. We talked about it in the last program. It was called Issue 1. In fact, it was the only issue on the, on the ballot. And yet, uh, reports were that the, the, the turnout for the vote was like what you would expect for a gubernatorial race here in Ohio. So uh, it's very uh, contested. Uh, millions of dollars of dark money has poured in to the state of Ohio. Um, in fact, one report said that so many millions came from a billionaire, a leftist billionaire in Switzerland, pouring money into Ohio to influence this election. And Ohioans were subjected to a barrage of commercials from the leftists. Uh, there's a kind of a leftist coalition that is <clears throat> who had come together to try to vote down issue one. Uh, even, even the Communist Party USA is weighed in on this, uh, urging that um, Ohioans vote down uh, issue one. So what, what is issue one? Uh, was an attempt to uh, secure the Constitution of the state of Ohio against the leftists' plan to subvert it by using the rather low bar of changing the Constitution, 50% plus um, of the vote, of the popular vote, to change the Constitution of the state of Ohio, the leftists have every intention 
of beginning to push into the Ohio State Constitution their perversions, their perverse so-called rights, rights to abortion up to birth, uh, rights to transgender children without the parent consents, and so on and so forth. They have uh, kind of uh, targeted Ohio as a, uh, the ground to, to force all that through. And they think that if they can get 50% plus one vote of people in Ohio to shoot down this, to negate the attempt to raise the bar to 60%, about 50%, that they can use that, that same 50% plus one vote to push all these other perversions on the state of Ohio. And then they want to broaden that uh, plan to cover all the other states, especially the red states. Uh, so uh, this is a very critical issue. It is, uh, uh, we don't have the results yet. The polls just closed here in Ohio. So we're very anxious to hear what happens. Um, you know, you have the question of whether or not the, even the, the vote, the integrity of the vote will, will reflect the honest, the honest vote. You just don't know that anymore, the way things are going. Uh, but uh, we're praying. We're praying that uh, enough of the people in Ohio at least got the message that there is an attack on the Constitution here in the state of Ohio by the leftists. And they're trying to essentially, um, well, I'd have to say, kind of buy their way into the Constitution uh, of the state of Ohio and radically change uh, the state uh, into a hotbed of their, their perversions. You know, somebody told me, uh, you know, Father, I don't know if we really need to be concerned about this. I mean, we have this issue, one that wants to raise the, uh, the vote, the popular vote from 50% to 60% to change the Constitution. Well, it's been 50% from the beginning. Uh, so, I mean, why all of a sudden should we be concerned and, and change that and raise, raise the bar uh, to make it harder to change the Constitution? And I would say, well, you know, it reminds me of the householder who said, well, I, I've had that, you know, three-foot stone a wall around my sheepfold, uh, around my house all these years, and it's always been adequate. I mean, I know the Huns are coming, right? I know the barbarians are marching and they're coming. Why would I, I mean, this three-foot stone wall has been adequate all these years. Why would I want to reinforce it? Or what I would, why would I want to raise the, the wall a little bit higher? It's been adequate all this time. Well, the fact is because the Huns are coming, you know, and you have to reinforce the walls now uh, for that very reason, because now you're under attack. Um... So um, we, we need to uh, become more serious about the, what we're facing here, understand it better. I, I, I was very dismayed by this whole uh, episode, Tom, because uh, I mean, I, I heard the loud, loud voice of the leftists in their signs, which seemed to be everywhere in Ohio. Uh, in their commercials, which seem to be airing every five minutes, not that I watch that much television, but it just seemed to be, uh, you know, you're constantly hearing this drumbeat, and it, it's full of lies. Uh, not only do they misrepresent the, the issue, 
and a yes vote on the issue, but they actually uh, totally subvert the message by uh, claiming that those who are introducing the issue are guilty of trying to undermine one man, one vote, and trying to undermine the people's voice, when it's actually just the opposite. They are the ones who are doing this. They are the voices of those from outside Ohio who are trying to subvert the Ohio State Constitution. But they're blaming those who introduced the, the, the initiative. They're blaming those who would vote in favor of it, of doing exactly what they're doing. But this is typical leftist, uh, leftist tactics here. So um, you know that as of our program last, last week, there was to be a program, uh, Rosary Rally, a rosary rally held just a couple of blocks from here, Doral Field in, uh, in Norwood. And, um, you know, after having the speeches, which I understand, I understand were good speeches, people who attended the speeches said that they all had something good to say, although there were some things that were said that you wouldn't want little children to be hearing. Because some of these things are rather sorted by nature. But at the end, um, they decided to have what was supposed to be a rosary rally and about the rosary. So you'd think they'd be praying the 15 decades of the rosary, the traditional rosary, because these were Catholic people who had traditional faith. Uh, but uh, Bishop Strickland came, and, uh, you know, there are people who have high hopes for him, because he was the prelate of the Novus Ordo. He actually uh, went out and led the protest against these uh, perverted homosexual nuns, so-called, right, out in, uh, in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium, right? So they had high hopes for him. When it comes down to it, what do they have? They have five decades, not even the rosary, but the five decades of the Illuminous Mysteries. That's it for the rosary rally. And they're holding up the rosary saying, this is the weapon, this is what we used to have to fight. Uh, this is the, you know, power of heaven is, 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 comes through the mysteries of the rosary. And so they don't even take mysteries of the rosary. And on top of that, they, they don't even pray any more than that. It's like over in like 12, 15 minutes, and that's it. Of just spending two hours more uh, talking and speeches. So uh, unfortunately, I'm afraid it kind of degenerated into a, a novus ordo function. And um, I, you know, I, it was just, uh, from that point of view, it, it was... Uh, Unfortunate. Um, but uh, in any case, the whole point, though, the point was something that nonetheless bore uh, supporting the point that is, uh, the initiative has to be passed. The ballot initiative, the, uh, number one, had to be passed in order to uh, try to protect Ohioans against these perversions, in other words, in order to stand up for basically God's rights here and not allow the leftists to um, try to, uh, let's say, negate the divine right of God by their own perversions. So the fundamental message still was there and hopefully it got out. Hopefully it will prevail. But um, it certainly was not a traditional Catholic exercise for that way. Uh, you and I would have done it much differently. Perhaps we shouldn't, <laughs> right? Uh, 
So, but it all came about very, very suddenly. It was all, um, it all kind of was pulled out of the hat and just within the two weeks before the event of last Sunday. And um, that's one reason why it was very difficult for us to keep track of what is going on here, because it was a consistently changing, constantly changing thing. Um, so I, I think the one key th point that we came away with, don't be caught flat-footed anymore. And when we realize something's going on, don't wait for somebody else to take the initiative. We have to take the initiative. So, uh, you know, insofar as we learn those lessons, well, there's some progress made in that regard. So. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> uh, well, thank you, Father. Um, we did have some viewer email that we wanted to uh, try and get your response to tonight. Mm -hmm. had, um, I think great questions, um, mm -hmm. a lot uh, kind of revolving around uh, Vatican II, Francis, um, of, of course. Um, but nevertheless, some very good questions, I think so. Uh, this first one, um, rather unfortunate here. Father, this viewer says, I am leaving Catholicism and will be received into the Orthodox Church this very month, uh, as I just don't see how to reconcile modernism, the hermeneutic of continuity, uh, recognize and resist, or state of econism with the visibility of the Church. When my recognize and resist godmother told me it was necessary for salvation to be subject to the Pope, I asked her why she was not subject to him. So is there any way to make the crisis work with the doctrine of visibility of the church? Yes, certainly. Uh, absolutely. In fact, uh, someone pointed out that leaving uh, traditional to Catholicism to join Orthodoxy was like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. And I would say that that's a fairly good analogy. I don't really look upon traditional Catholicism as the frying pan, though. But I do look orthodox, uh, upon orthodoxy as leaping into the fire. Okay? Anybody who's familiar with the actual history of, of orthodoxy understands the origins of it and uh, the flaws, the intrinsic flaws in, in it, and uh, realizes this is not the answer. Um, uh, if I can just actually say a few words about that to begin with. Um, orthodoxy is trying to be a form of Christianity, uh, which really is organized around cultural lines, culture, even political lines. Uh, there is no trace of that in the Gospels at all. There's not a vestige uh, not a scintilla of that idea in the Gospels, that the church that Christ established would be organized according to cultural or even political lines. And um, basically, uh, you know, this gentleman is confusion here, but, I mean, it, it's an honest confusion, I believe. He's trying to figure these things out. I give him credit for trying. Um, it's just kind of kind of heading in the direction of Protestantism, exchanging the papacy for multiple uh, multiple popes, right? A multiplicity of popes, metropolitans and patriarchs and all the rest. Um, and uh, so there's no real authority or central authority in orthodoxy. 
That's not what Christ established. Um, he might find a certain comfort in that, I suppose, um, because, um, in a sense, what he's running from, because I consider that to be running from, actually, uh, has already, what he's running from has already been accomplished in orthodoxy. In other words, orthodoxy is kind of the end result of this chaos that's going on. Uh, caused by monarchism in the Catholic Church. And so he's saying, well, I can't stand all this controversy, so I'm just basically surrendering to it and saying I'm accepting the, the situation that actually is the consummation of the, of the controversy and the ultimate result of it where you get all, all these factions. Uh, and, uh, and everybody just kind of agree, agrees to have their own little prince, principality. A uh, little fiefdom there. Um, but that's not what Christ established. Christ established the papacy. And um, there's no doubt about it. I mean, when you read the Gospels, it's, it's as clear as a bell. Christ established the papacy. I mean, he, he did ask the apostles, whom do men say that the Son of Man is? Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this to thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I will give thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord said that to Peter, uniquely to Peter. And um, after our Lord's resurrection, as he, uh, our Lord, and St. John and St. Peter are walking along the shore of Galilee, our Lord says to Peter personally, not to John, you feed my lambs, you feed my sheep. You go to the very first pages of the Acts of the Apostles, and who is making the decisions? It's Peter. It's Peter who's making those decisions, and all the apostles accept that. There's no, no hint of objection, no hint of questioning. And who is the one who gives the first sermon on Pentecost Sunday morning? It's Peter. <clears throat> um... Who is the one who confronts Ananias and Sapphira in their lie and attempt to cheat the Holy Ghost? It is Peter. So um, <clears throat> the, the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles speak very clearly that there was a, an office established by Jesus Christ in the Church, office of what we know as the papacy. And uh, by, by that Christ has commanded Peter to feed the lambs and feed the sheep. But our Lord has also made it very clear uh, from the scriptures and from the tradition of the church that Peter is a sinner uh, and he has weaknesses and, fail and is subject to failure. And we've seen popes fail, uh, despite what uh, certain individuals we know <laughs> say about that. We've seen popes fail, fail our Lord, fail the church, fail the faithful. Um, so he does not make them some kind of superhuman, uh, you know, personages when when first become a pope. Uh, but our Lord never said that he would. Um, in any case, the papacy is a reality that one cannot ignore. One cannot really legitimately deny. It is part of divine revelation. And uh, that is precisely why it is so 
um, so loved by the Catholic people and so hated by the, the enemies of the church and the enemies of Christ. That is why the Masons uh, set about their, their, their long-term plan to infiltrate the church to seize control of the papacy. Uh, they wanted control of that office. And um, Francis and friends certainly fit the description of what the Masons said they needed, what the Masons said their uh, ultimate goal would be, the type of person to, um, to have gained that control and be looked upon by the, church, by the faithful as a pope and what he would do and how he would subvert the church. But uh, let's take a look at that for a minute. He says he, he uh, cannot reconcile modernism, the hermeneutic of continuity, <clears throat> R&R, which is not rest and relaxation, um, but rather uh, recognize and resist a position that certain people have that recognize Francis as the Pope, but resist him. Uh, of accountism to reconcile all of those. He's unable to do that, to reconcile those. He says to reconcile them with the visibility of the church. Now, can he reconcile any one of those things with the visibility of the church? It's clear he can't recognize, reconcile all of them with the visibility of the church because those things can't be reconciled with each other. So clearly, you know, it's not possible to recognize the, all of these things with the visibility of the church. <clears throat> um, I'd say the recognize and resist, I would have trouble recon uh, reconciling that <clears throat> with the visibility of the church because the recognize and resist people seem to have the mentality Yes, Francis, I, I just, he's the, the actual modernist pontiff right now. Uh, they say, yes, he is certainly the Pope, and no, essentially, we don't have to do anything he says. And that is not a Catholic concept at all. It's impossible to recognize that, reconcile that idea with the visibility of the Church, because the, the very formal cause of the papacy, the very... In nature, the papacy, you know, carries that that authority. Christ gave it that in constituting, yes, establishing the office of the Pope. So, um, so it's really not a Catholic position to say, yes, we recognize him as the Pope, and no, we can resist everything he says. We don't have to do anything he tells us to do. Um, the hermeneutic of continuity, well, again, that applies to modernism. The modernists basically seized control of Vatican II and produced this, uh, not only these documents, the 16 documents, principal documents of Vatican II, uh, which have opened up the Pandora's box of just whatever goes, well, modernism, basically. And uh, all of the, the changes that uh, swept like a tidal wave over the church over the, the following 15 20 years, uh, just kept coming and coming. And uh, so, yes, how does one rec reconcile all of that, the modernist revolution, the modernist uh, infiltration and invasion and usurpation of the church, 
with the idea that there can be a hermeneutic of continuity with all of that, with the traditional teaching of the church. It's preposterous. The whole concept of a hermeneutic of continuity between what came before the modernist um, conquest, you might say, and what followed it. There is no hermeneutic of continuity. You might as well argue for a, the hermeneutic of continuity between, um, uh, you know, Moscow before the Bolshevik takeover and Moscow after the Bolshevik takeover. Say, well, let's look for a hermeneutic of continuity here, okay? Or uh, Jerusalem uh, under Sophronius when it was still Catholic, and then, you know, uh, the Muslims conquering it and uh, just taking, seizing control um, of, of Jerusalem. Where's the hermeneutic of continuity with, in that, you know? Uh, maybe I'm using kind of what might, some might consider obscure examples, but I think they get the point. There's such a radical difference here. There is no continuity. There's no hermeneutic of continuity. So people who have talked about this and tried to employ it have found that it is nonsense, and they're basically uh, involved in continual contradictions. Uh, so I can understand where this gentleman is coming from here. He's trying to reconcile these things. How does one recognize, though, reconcile state of Vicantism with the visibility of the church? Well, state of Vicantism actually is based upon the, the, the idea that there has to be a continuity in the teaching of the church, and where there is a radical departure or even denial on the part of those, uh, notably, who are members of the hierarchy, in the past, the church has said wherever a member of the hierarchy has radically uh, departed from or denied the traditional teaching of the church, that member of the hi hierarchy had to be censured or even excised from the church by being excommunicated. But the state of Vicantism today rec recognizes that it's not just this <clears throat> particular prelate, that particular bishop, this particular metropolitan or whatever, but it's the entire uh, structure of the Novus Ordo uh, has taken the church, uh, has basically kidnapped the faithful, uh, and they are rancid with modernism. And the Vatican has become like the world beacon of modernism, which is, as you know, tied to Freemasonry. Um, and that's, so it's not speaking with the Catholic voice anymore. So Sedevicantism says, just as the church in the past has recognized that when a particular bishop or priest, in it, no matter what rank he might have held in the church, has departed from the traditional teaching of the church, he had to be censured, perhaps even excommunicated, if he's pertinacious in denying the faith or giving scandal to the faithful. But here you have Francis himself now, uh, who, for all practical purposes, is an operative of, of masonry. Um, for all practical purposes, and it um, represents really the voice of the enemies of the church. Um, and so, you know, the state of Vicantus simply are recognizing this fact for what it is, and saying, well, the consequences traditionally are that we, we cannot recognize this voice as that of the Pope. And uh, the controversy is, well, um, does this mean that he cannot be the Pope? If he's not speaking as the Pope, is one thing. 
but if he is uh, actually contradicting the, the, the faith and he's actually acting uh, contrary to the faith and even the very nature of the papacy, St. Abacantus say, well, therefore, there's, a, there's at least an objective doubt as to whether he is the pope, uh, whether he ever was the pope, whether he could become the pope, because he, it's clear from the very beginning he did not have the Catholic faith, still does not have it, and he holds belief contrary to it, especially the papacy. His concept of the papacy is at total, totally at variance with the traditional Catholic concept of the papacy. So what he believes of the papacy is not only not true, his concept of the papacy has been condemned by the church, notably uh, Pope Pius X and Pashendi, and condemning the errors of the modernists. So the question arises, <clears throat> how can one hold an office he doesn't even believe exists? Furthermore, how can he hold an office that he believes is something completely contrary to what he believes in, that he has such a concept of the office itself that it is a denial, an explicit denial of the reality of the, the true office of the papacy. Uh, though, I mean, though, I think those are serious questions. State of Accountism raises those questions. And uh, instead of really addressing them and answering them rationally and intelligently, you have those who just scream, state of Accountus, state of Accountus, state of Accountus, and uh, basically try to drown them out. Um, now, again, I mean, the position of the Society of St. Pius V is nuanced in that regard because we realize that one might have the uh, subjective conviction that Francis is not the Pope and could not be a Pope um, and is entitled to that subjective conviction and to act upon it too. But we also have the common Catholic sense to realize that we are not the Pope. None of us is the Pope. And we are not the magisterium of the Catholic Church. We don't pretend to be. And we can't, um, as other groups, by the way, do pretend to be, uh, we do not pretend to be the magisterium of the Catholic Church, and we cannot uh, deviate from tradition ourselves. So we cannot pretend to issue dogmas and, and so on, um, and, uh, you know, make, make dogmatic statements. But we can uh, speak in a very clear, logical way, logical, theological way, based upon the principles the Church herself has given us, and the facts as they are known, and uh, come to certain very definite conclusions. The conclusion that we've come to is, we cannot jump on this modernist bandwagon, because that would be to betray the Church. Uh, the Church, which throughout the centuries has always told the faithful that in times of confusion and crisis, hold fast to the traditions. And that's exactly what we're doing. And no one can really argue against that, because it's what the Church herself, herself has said over and over again, consistently throughout her entire history. In times of confusion, crisis, disorder, hold fast to the Catholic traditions. This is what the Catholic people did during the Great Western Schism, right? When, you know, you, you had the Pope in Rome and then 
the popes had just returned from Avignon to Rome, and then there was a schism among the cardinals even. They left Rome after electing one man, Urban VI, and went to, uh, to back to Avignon and elected a Frenchman now. And so, so the same cardinals elected him. And then they're tried, they made an attempt to make a reconciliation by electing a third man with the assurance that the first two would resign. They didn't, so now there were three uh, claiming the papacy. But what the Catholic people did during that time is they held fast to the faith. The doctrines of the faith, the practice of the faith, faith, faith the traditional mass, the traditional sacraments, they continued to practice the faith in its integrity. They did what the church said had to be done. <clears throat> in a time when it, it seemed as though chaos had set in and people were wondering, how can this ever be resolved? The Catholic people held on to the faith. If they had done this uh, throughout Vatican II and the years after Vatican II, Vatican II would have been buried even as Archbishop Vigano said it should be, because it can't be reconciled with the Catholic faith. But they didn't. They followed Vatican II. As the Masons knew, they would, because they said, well, they thought they're following the Pope, as Catholics would ordinarily do. Um, unfortunately, the Masons uh, said that when we have the Pope in our control, they'll be following us, thinking they're following a Catholic Pope. So those who haven't read the permanent instruction of the Alta Vendita should go back and read it. Those who have read it need to go back and reread it again, I'd say, to understand the significance of what they, what they forecast for the Church and uh, kind of rekindle in their minds uh, the message that the Church gave through the centuries. Hold fast to the traditions of the faith the traditional Mass, the traditional sacraments, the traditional catechisms, and uh, do not go charging off um, in a new direction led by anybody, anybody, uh, because the Church has always in the past condemned that so-called new direction, in this case, the direction of modernism. So I would just ask this gentleman to please uh, don't try to answer the questions that are beyond our ability. Don't abandon the true faith and the true church, certainly not at a time like this, for the sake of throwing, casting your lot in with a church that has itself fallen away centuries ago and, uh, you know, basically is in denial of, uh, of, the, of the true faith. Um, the, there's a lot more that could be said about that that I'm not saying right now, historically. Um, and if this gentleman wants to discuss it, I'd invite him to do so. I'd be glad to hear from him. Um, but uh, it, it comes down to the fact that Jesus Christ did is establish the papacy on Peter and his successors. It's unmistakable. It's undeniable. And um, the Catholic Church is right in recognizing that and holding to that. We have the um, records, the history of true popes throughout for centuries and centuries, and their voice endures in Catholic tradition. And in holding to that, we cannot go wrong. So I would ask him to rethink his position and 
uh, just simply re-commit um, himself to, ca to practicing Catholic tradition following the faith. Mm -hmm. Father, he, he asks about uh, the, the visibility of the Church and reconciling that with Sede Vicantism, and you've uh, said before how um, you know, there, there have been 260-something uh, times in the history of the Church where there was, in fact, no Pope every time a previous Pope had died, and it's not uh, as if the Church was invisible uh, during those times, it's not as if the Church disappeared simply because they were uh, presently without a Pope, but even if, even if there, there was a true valid Pope who um, lost the faith or somehow uh, uh, lost the papacy, um, that still wouldn't eliminate traditional Catholic wouldn't bishops. wouldn't destroy the visibility of the church. The, the, no. the church would always be visible, right? No, but not only that, but, you know, we have to understand something. And again, it goes back to divine revelation. Our Lord did ask the apostles once uh, the, what seemed like a rhetorical question. The answer he did not give, but the answer was implied. Our Lord asked the apostles, do you think when the Son of Man returns to judge, he will find faith on earth? Now, what, the, what is the implication of that question? That there will not be faith on earth? Well, the implication is that uh, it's not going to be this great visible structure that this uh, gentleman seems to insist the church must always be. Our Lord is definitely saying there, and I'd say the implication is thundering. I mean, it's uh, unmistakable what our Lord is saying that the church will be so oppressed that its visible presence on earth will be practically undiscernible. Um, that the church may, the, our Lord said, I will be with you all days, even under the consummation of the world, right? So the church cannot be destroyed, right? But it can be reduced to a mere handful. And it can be reduced to worshiping in the catacombs. We saw it once, we can see it again, as the church is persecuted. Um, so it may be that the church is reduced to practicing the faith underground as though the church had been buried once again, as our Lord himself was buried, but still very much alive. So, you know, there, there are a number of things that people have to bear in mind when they talk about the visibility of the church. First of all, in talking about the visibility of the church, they're talking about really a dogma of faith. The church is a visible institution. There's no doubt about that. You cannot deny that, okay? And be a Catholic, okay? But neither can you deny what our Lord said, first of all, in asking that question, and what it implies about the quote-unquote visibility insofar as the church can actually be seen and have, you know, a... a, a an outward uh, presence such that everybody can, can, can see it and marvel at it. But not only that, St. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that there will be a great falling away, a great apostasy. Okay? And it's not a question of whether that can happen. It's a matter of question rather, rather when will it happen. That's going to happen. So again, these two things that we know for a fact come from our Lord and from St. Paul. Uh, the reality of a great apostasy in the future, that also has to be taken into consideration when we're talking about the visibility of the church and how those, those things, notably the great apostasy, would affect the 
the visibility of the church as we know it. So just because the church is not visible in the same sense that we saw her in the Middle Ages, or we saw her in the Renaissance, that doesn't mean that if the church is reduced to a handful of people, uh, she has lost the nature of the church and lost her visibility and therefore is no longer the Catholic Church. Not at all. Any more than you could deny that under the cross, the church was there in our Blessed Mother's heart and in her faith, right? Even when our Lord was lying dead in the tomb, right? Before the resurrection. Um, the church was very much alive in her maternal heart. So, um, you know, I, 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 I concerned about this, you know, Tom, because this is an argument that is used over and over again to try to say, well, Francis must be the Pope and this, this hierarchy must be the hierarchy of the church. And we can't question that because the church must be a visible institution. And if you deny it, you're denying the visibility of the church and you're a heretic or you're a, you know, a scoundrel or whatever, and you're attacking the church. That's not true. Um, the church remains a visible institution. Uh, whether it's just, uh, you know, the Blessed Mother, St. John the Apostle, and Mary Magdalene at the cross, you know. Uh, the Church remains thoroughly the institution that Christ established her to be. And um, so it will be when our Lord's rhetorical question, do you think the Son of Man will find faith on earth when he returns to judge, when that question is answered in history, when the great apostasy actually occurs, the Church will remain what Christ established it to be, and it will be a visible institution. That doesn't mean it has to be visible in the same sense that you and I, well, I mean, you grew up after Vatican II. I was born before Vatican II, thank goodness. And uh, remember, but when we, for example, go to Rome, we see very much visibility of the church still. That might all disappear. But the visibility of the church remains. It's not brick and mortar. Faithful souls. And uh, if the church has been reduced to the modernists, then they're actually arguing the church has been destroyed. If all that's left of the Catholic Church really is what the modernists have done, if the Novus Ordo was all that's left of the Catholic Church, then we'd have to say the modernists have triumphed and Christ has failed. But as traditional Catholics were saying, that's not true. The modernists have not triumphed. They will never triumph. And the current uh, Pope of the Novus Ordo and his hierarchy that he's appointing here with their LGBTQ-friendly uh, uh, morality and all the rest, say, if that is all of that is left of the Catholic hierarchy, then we say rather the modernists are saying that Christ has failed. We will not agree with that. We insist that is not true, that cannot be true. And we take our ground, we take our stand on Catholic tradition to say that. So I hope that's clear. Yeah, well, we'll uh, certainly keep this individual in our prayers. Uh, and a couple more questions. Uh, Father, on the issue of Francis not being a valid pope, are there priests and others who take the position that he is not the valid pope, but out of fear of reprisals are in the closet about it? I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are those in the Novus Ordo 
who have misgivings about what's going on. And uh, every now and then they'll even speak up and say something bold and then get squashed. <laughs> uh, Bishop Strickland, who was down the way here uh, last Sunday, is one of those. He spoke it out boldly and then now he's being investigated. Okay. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a certain amount of fear of that. Just as back in uh, the 1970s, when a priest would speak out against the changes, he would be smacked. And if he kept speaking out, he would be dismissed and put in a nursing home somewhere, or psychologically evaluated, or defrocked, or whatever, right? Um, expelled from his religious order, and so on. Um, so there were many priests who were afraid to speak out, afraid to do anything. I'll lose my pension, right? I'll find myself out on the street. Well, um, if, if the Catholic uh, clergy had all thought like that, um, then all would have been lost, right? Fortunately, um, there were those who said, well, I am willing to uh, part with everything but my faith, and I will not give up my faith and the practice of my faith. Um, but I mean, you know, they had a choice between serving God or mammon, and uh, they chose mammon. Uh, so yes, there, there is a certain fear, I'm sure. Uh, even, even among uh, clergy of the Society of St. Pius X, although they're told that the official line is, and must be, that Francis is the true Pope. Um, there are many, I'm sure, and in fact, I'm certain there are some of the clergy in the Society of St. Pius X who have, again, uh, a um, personal conviction that he really isn't, or at least, at least they would agree with the Society of St. Pius V and acknowledging there's an objective doubt. It's certainly doubtful. Uh, they're not convinced. They, they may not convinced he is not the Pope, but they're not convinced he is either. Okay, let's put it that way. Um, so, um, but again, I mean, uh, for fear of being uh, uh, branded Sedificantis or uh, expelled or put in uh, the freezer, <laughs> whatever they do, they're afraid to speak out. Um, that's true of conservative Novosoro clergy. Uh, that's true even of some um, maybe traditional Catholic clergy who find themselves, um, shall we say, under, under the, the gun to, to follow the party line. Um, so anyway, um, I, I guess that basically answers the question as it is asked, right? Father, pe people sometimes ask why uh, why do uh, traditional priests like yourself or the Society of St. Pius V, um, why do they not seek and, and reach out to uh, priests or traditional Catholics who may uh, may may think that way? Um, we know there's a great think um, think what way who who may uh, who may think actually and privately at least and more in line with uh, with what the Society of Saint Pius V believes, um, but you know maybe they're like you said they're too for whatever reason too afraid to come out and say that. Um, well, when they say not? reach out to them, what do they mean? Uh, to uh, seek them out and try to win them over? Well, yeah. um, you know we basically certainly pray for them, and uh, when we have an opportunity, we do talk with them and say, look, you know you have to really follow your conscience in this. <laughs> and you can't be living a contradiction. 
but it's the very nature of the thing. They are struggling, so it's not something we would make public. Because we don't necessarily want to out them or expose them. Yeah. So we respect the fact that they're trying to work this out. Yeah. Uh, and we're hoping that in the course of time, they'll find their way to us. Yeah. Uh, part of the problem, though, is we, we try to explain what our position is, and we, our position is continually misrepresented by other traditional organizations and their leaders who are continually just um, um, misrepresenting our position to their followers. And I think they're misrepresenting our position because uh, I think they realize it's, it's, it's reasonable and I think they find that many of their followers would probably agree <clears throat> with us if they knew what we really said. That's my thought on the subject anyway. Yeah. Um, okay, another email. Father, uh, the Sphere says, I'm wondering how to begin confession after being away for two years. Uh, he says he's been away for two different reasons. One is difficulty driving due to his age and failing eyesight. Abriyasa says, um, had the inability to root out a particular sin of many years, having to confess it repeatedly, despite the firmly resolved phrase at the end of each confession. Uh, but he's now able to travel again, and he feels uh, Father encouraged uh, to return to Mass and the Sacraments after reading The Imitation of Christ. Um, so he's just, uh, he has another question, Father, but maybe we could just start with that. Any advice uh, for this individual in returning to Mass and Sacraments after after some time away. Well, by all means, yeah, this is the grace of God. I mean, if what kept him away was the circumstances, and the circumstances have changed, thank God, God has provided for him now. Yeah. And he really needs to follow through. Mm -hmm. okay. um, make that drive. Now that you can, get to a true traditional Mass offered by a true traditional priest, and get to the confessional. And, uh, you know, now that, as you say, you're, you're moved by reading the imitation of Christ for true repentance, contrition for sin, that's, that's a great grace, and <laughs> he needs to act upon it. Yep. Okay. Uh, Father also says, uh, a while back in a brief exchange with someone at uh, Vatican Catholic, uh, he has in parentheses, the Diamond Brothers, I mentioned that many years back I was baptized and confirmed at an SSPV chapel. I could hardly believe the negativity of their reaction. I was told that I must confess any part of this association to either an elderly priest ordained in the traditional rite or an Eastern rite Catholic. Uh, the, they condemn Vatican II, but their recommendation is to confess to priests who at least tacitly are loyal to modernist Rome and thus to Vatican II. That's Father, I thought this may be of some interest to you. Well, that, that is interesting that they tell them, okay, you were baptized in a society in Pius V chapel many years ago. You have to repent of that. You have to reject that. You, now you have to go and you have to but, but, uh, uh, confess, confess any people. part of this association <laughs> to an elderly priest ordained in the traditional rite. Whether it may, does that mean like an indult, indult, elderly indult priest who is still attached to the Novus Ordo? It could be. Or an Eastern rite Catholic, again, part of the, the Novus Ordo church, really. Uh, so they say, he says, isn't this a contradiction? And the answer is, yes, it is. But, you know, the problem is, as with the Diamond Brothers, when they falsify Catholic teaching, and uh, in, it inevitably leads to contradictions. Um, and, and this is just a manifestation of a contradiction that follows logically, unfortunately, from their illogical and 
ill theological position, right? The position they've taken. Um, so they have to find a way to um, basically, uh, what should I say, disassociate themselves from those who teach the, the true Catholic teaching on this matter and tell people to repent uh, if they're associated with the true teaching. And where do they send them? They send them to Novosoro. They send them to Novosoro priests. Does that make sense? No. Uh, but given the logic of their principles, then the policies kind of follow suit. Yeah, so uh, I'm glad, I'm very glad that this gentleman recognizes that contradiction and that he will not fall into that, mm -hmm. that okay. pit. Yeah. Okay, uh, maybe just one more email, Father. Actually, Tom, I'm, I'm ready to all right. answer them all. <laughs> we we yeah. said last time we'd be brief. Okay. At least I would be brief. Right. I can't guarantee that you'll be brief, but yeah, I, I, I'll yeah. be brief. <laughs> uh, Father Jenkins, this viewer says, if you believe in supplied jurisdiction for yourself to be granted from the church because of the supreme law of the church of the salvation of souls being the most important thing above all else, and if you believe upon a premature death and baptism of desire where God can supply what is needed for salvation to a soul who has a sincere love for God and true desire for baptism, then why is it that you cannot believe that God is capable to supply all that would be necessary to a Latin Mass Catholic priest who was ordained in the new rite through no fault of his own, who had a true desire to be a Catholic priest and to do what was right in his heart for the Church and for God's people? Okay. Is this a challenge? <laughs> Actually, she does say, uh, you, you gave me a copy of this one. Yeah. <laughs> Read what she says at the end, though. I thought that was kind of nice. <laughs> she says, God bless you, Father Jenkins, for all you do. I mean, no offense by my question. You are a blessing on this earth today, and you are in my prayers. Okay, well, I wasn't prayer. looking for the accolades, yeah. <laughs> but the fact that she said, I didn't mean to be offensive, okay. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't want her question to be interpreted that way. Uh, you didn't have to read the other things, but I appreciate the <laughs> sentiments. But look... You know, you ask, why is it that I cannot believe that God is capable of supplying all that would be necessary to a Latin Mass Catholic priest who was ordained in the New Rite through no fault of his own? Well, uh, I, I can believe that God is capable of doing that. Of course God is capable of doing that. There's no question of... of uh, Denying God's ability to grant the power of the priesthood, uh, the character of the priesthood to whomever he wishes. God is not limited to the sacraments. God's power is not limited by the sacraments. You realize that. But, you know, the writer asks, well, if you believe in supply jurisdiction, right, uh, because of the supreme law of the church for the salvation of souls, and if you believe that someone dies without receiving the water of baptism, that person can be saved by baptism desire because God supplies that. Why wouldn't you believe, why can't you believe that somebody could be ordained priesthood invisibly by God, even though, let's say, he, he's invalidly ordained according to the sacramental rite, right? Not ordained by the sacrament, but just ordained directly by God. And the, the answer to that question is because the Church herself gives us the, the concept of supply jurisdiction. 
And the church explains uh, to us very clearly what supplied jurisdiction is. It's a part of uh, Catholic moral theology and sacramental theology. And there's no doubt about it that that is a principle that Catholic, the Catholic Church recognizes. It's something very real and something the Church has actually written into her law. And the same with the question of, let's say, uh, someone who has faith and hope and charity, enough to seek conversion and be a catechumen, who dies without the waters of baptism, that God can save that person, can save that soul. Because the Church herself has told us this is so. Uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, which comes out under the authority of St. Pius V, in its very first edition, the year 1566, the very year that St. Pius V was elected the Pope. The Catechism says that in the case of adults, there is no urgency to baptize because the adult basically can have faith and repent of his sins and have the intention to be baptized. And the Catechism says, if through no fault of his own, the catechumen dies without having actually received the waters of baptism. The church's belief is that the person's intention to be baptized, the will to receive the sacrament, and his repentance for his sins will avail him unto grace and justification. So um, these are things that the church explicitly teaches. But nowhere has the church herself actually given us the teaching that, well, if somebody's invalidly ordained because maybe the bishop himself wasn't validly consecrated a bishop, or the right used was not a valid right, and you didn't really have proper matter and form and intention necessary for a valid sacrament, well, God will ordain that person himself invisibly. The church has never taught that. And so all, all we're going by is the tradition of the church. And that is not part of the tradition of the church. And you can understand why. Because, I mean, if it were true that God would say, okay, this was invalid, the sacramental rite was invalid, uh, because whatever reason, uh, the person received, underwent this of goodwill, so I'll just go ahead and ordain them invisibly. How would you know? How would you have any idea whether they were validly ordained or not? There's, I mean, there would be those who say, well, look, there is a, a, an essential flaw in the ceremony. Matter, form, intention was missing, or we find out that the bishop was now validly consecrated a bishop. And uh, so, but, and yet, we're going to say, we should say, well, but we, we think that God probably ordained this person anyway, invisibly. So let's just go with that. You can't do that. The church could not do that, ever. And so when there was a question about, uh, even when there was a question about whether a, a, an ordination was invalid or because, or because of whatever flaw, the church would always, always apply the ceremonies uh, most urgently when it involved a matter of validity. The church wouldn't just say, oh, well, God knows what we really meant. <laughs> you know? And so he, he took care of it. The church never did that. Uh, she would always see to it that the right was administered validly. But all we can do is go by what God himself tells us. We can't go editorializing and saying, well, you know, our Lord says this, but 
well, you know, he knows what we really meant. <laughs> and so he's going to grant that. No, God wanted us to have the certitude of the, of the validity of the sacraments when we can certify that these elements, the matter, form, and the intention were there and the minister had the power to grant, to administer the sacrament. Um, so that's what we have to go by. You know? So um, let's see if we can quickly maybe wrap up a couple okay. more times. Since I, yeah. I just hate to leave the questions hanging there for those good people who took the time to write us. I know you feel the same way. Yes, Father. Uh, Sphere says, how does one answer her novice lord or daughter who just recently asked her diocesan bishop if it would be okay if she went to Mass at St. Teresa's. I assume, Father, she's speaking of your chapel, St. Teresa's in Parma. In Parma, Ohio. Ohio. Uh, and was told by the bishop that it would not satisfy her and her family's Sunday obligation. Uh, she says, I am, I am persevering in prayer and a good example, yet I am met by this obstacle just as she was about to move in the right direction. I will continue to pray for her and set a good example. Yes, again, I mean, the word hypocrite is a very nasty word, but the reality of hypocrisy is even worse than the word. And here you have a Novus Ordo Bishop who statistically has at least 80% of the people who are registered as Catholics in his diocese don't even attend Sunday Masses. And what does he say to them? You know, I mean, what, what efforts is he making there? about them not fulfilling their Sunday obligation, right? Or if a Catholic were to say, well, my niece is getting married in the Methodist church on a Sunday, can I go? Can I go there? Would he tell her, well, you know, that doesn't fulfill any Sunday obligation, you can't go there, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't know what he would say, but I bet you most of the Novus Rovitches would say, well, you know, as long as you're worshiping, that's the important thing. You have a reason to be there. And, uh, you know, uh, Tom, again, the hypocrisy of it all. The rules apply only to traditional Catholics. And the traditional rules apply only to traditional Catholics because they know that we're the only ones who care about the traditional rules. So they pull out those, the rule book when a traditional Catholic comes to them and says, gee, what happens if I go to St. Therese? And they say, well, you know, according to, you know, the code of canon law, this is that, the other thing, these are the consequences which they, they don't bother with anybody else because nobody else cares, you know. Everybody else gets a free pass to do whatever they please, and they, they are justified uh, by their clergy in doing that. Um, you know, practicing artificial birth control, well, follow your conscience. Follow your conscience, you know. Uh, living together with your boyfriend, girlfriend, well, go ahead, see how it works out. If it works out, come and get married then, you know. Uh, you know, are you, are you doing that and coming up and putting your hand out and receiving the host? Well, you know, that's okay. Living in adultery, you know, if Francis says this, you know, th that shouldn't keep you away from the side. That's okay. <clears throat> but have a, a person say, well, can I go to the traditional mass at St. Teresa's? That's throwing verboten, you know, you're going to go straight to hell. Suddenly they, they real the hell was created for traditional Catholics only, it seems, for these people. <laughs> So it, it, if I sound as though I'm not happy with this, I'm not happy with this. Uh, because uh, if there's one thing our Lord denounced during his lifetime, it was hypocrisy. And I, I see this as being hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. uh, so this woman should realize that the, the Novus Ordo is not, is not the Catholic Mass, was never intended to be. It was never intended to be 
the unbloody sacrifice of the cross of our Lord. Uh, the prayers that said in the Mass that it is the unbloody sacrifice have been removed from the new Mass. So she should go to the traditional Mass if she wants to be a Catholic. Uh, stay away from the Novus Ordo. And she's asking the wrong person. If she expects uh, to get any uh, Catholic answer to her question. Yeah. So, anyway. Okay. Uh, well, Father, two questions about the uh, Society of St. Pius X, actually. This one we've had for some time now. It's actually uh, from back in June. Um, this viewer said that I understand from a very reliable source who would know that the Vatican has apparently approved of the SSBX consecration of new bishops soon. Of course, the Society's bishops are growing older, so this doesn't really come as a surprise. But my question, Father, is whether or not you think the SSPX will be moving the Society toward a permanent habitation with modernist Rome, and whether Rome will have anything to do with the selection of these bishops. Why would Francis want the Society to move forward when he has spent so much effort in trying to eradicate tradition from the face of the earth? Makes me wonder what he's up to, so I would like to hear your thoughts, Father. Well, the, the rumor that the Society of St. Pius X is going to be consecrating bishops with Francis's approval proved to be exactly that. It was just a rumor. Uh, the month of June came and went, and there was no such thing. Um, where did these rumors come from? I don't know. Okay. I think the Society of St. Pius X would like to consecrate bishops with Francis's approval. Uh, I just heard recently, uh, evidently one of the priests of the Society in Germany was citing uh, Bishop Fillet as his source, saying that the Society had no intention of consecrating more bishops because the Novus Ordo bishops themselves, the conservative ones, were gradually turning away from Francis and back to tradition, and so there wasn't a need to consecrate more bishops for the Society of St. Pius X, or anyone else for that matter, because the Novus Ordo bishops were kind of wising up and returning to tradition. I don't see that, certainly. And if I did, I would say, well, how do we know they're validly consecrated bishops to begin with? Or even priests, because of the, the substantial changes to the right of ordination of priests and the substantial changes to the right of consecration of bishops. So even if all of the Novus Ordo bishops had a change of heart and decided to begin practicing Catholic tradition, that would be one of the first questions that would come to mind. What about the validity? of the holy orders that they received that had to be, that would have to be resolved. Um, but in any case, um, you know, I, I, the society has accepted a Bishop Juander, as you know, a Bishop Juander, who was ordained in the Novus Ordo. Uh, I think he was ordained a priest in the Novus Ordo, if not, but also consecrated in the Novus Ordo. Uh, in any case, uh, they've just accepted him as validly consecrated bishop, even to the point of having him uh, uh, consecrate holy oils for them to use in anointing the dying and so on. And uh, so I think that is a very bold and very risky, risky move, right? Um, but I think that shows where the society is coming from. I think they're holding out hope that eventually the Novus Ordo will sort of um, slowly turn back uh, in their direction, and uh, uh, but you know, again, I think they are 
not only well naive is is, is one uh, word that comes to mind, but I, I think they don't understand modernism. Yeah. Uh, so, no, no, there, there's there's nothing to that. Okay. All right. Uh, last and, question. And finally. Yeah. <laughs> last question, Father. Viewer, uh, uh, he he sends us a link to a uh, to a, a video interview interview uh, with Bishop Williamson. And uh, in this interview, apparently Bishop Williamson claims that Monsignor Lefebvre told people privately in circum certain circumstances that they could attend the new Mass. Do you believe uh, what's Bishop Williamson? It's possible at some time. Um, you know, the Archbishop had this long history through the 60s, through the 70s, through the 80s, right? I mean, roughly 30 years of uh, fighting uh, for Catholic tradition. He himself had a certain progress, as he himself acknowledges, um, uh, throughout that time, uh, from the end of Vatican II all the way to, to the time of his death, God rest his soul. Um, he was assessing and adjusting, um, and so there might well have been a, a time when Monsieur Lefebvre did say, you could go to the Novus Ordo under these circumstances. Maybe he said, if it was in Latin, Maybe he would say, well, it was done by an older priest who still certainly had the faith and chose the reverence. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the question is, was it possible that Archbishop Lefebvre would have said that? And the answer is, at some point, it is possible that he might have said that. Um, I will say this, though, uh, that Monsignor Lefebvre's thinking did uh, change somewhat as time went on. And he saw what was happening in the Novus Ordo. And I think if you wanted to, to know where his mind uh, finally came to rest here, and in, in this life, I don't mean in, in death, uh, what his final statement was <coughs> about where his thoughts were. After all of that history, after all of that experience, all of that prayer, all of that thought, I think you have to read his last interview. Now, we have posted a link to that on our website. And I think that that last interview of Monsignor Lefebvre really sums up the progress of all of that time in his mind and his heart with regard to the traditional and the Novus Ordo, the Catholic and the modernist. Uh, he himself says in that interview that there were times when he tried to work things out and he said that he might well have been too giving. He might have gone too far in trying to give too much or yield too much to the modernists. He comes out and says that. And I, I <clears throat> there were times in my, you know, I wasn't a confidant of Monsieur Lefebvre, but there were times when I did have the interaction with him personally, and there were times when I remarked about uh, to myself, his humility and acknowledgement that you know he, he did not consider himself to be infallible. And uh, so in that last interview, I, I think he, he uh, manifests again that, that humility, that there were times when he himself felt that, uh, after all, he might have been too yielding to the modernists, and maybe he shouldn't have conceded what, to them what he did. Um, so is it possible that at some point he, he would have advised someone saying, yes, you can, good conscience, go under these circumstances, whatever they were? It's possible. 
Um, but I think in any case, whatever he yielded to the modernists for the sake of uh, diplomacy, I think he repented of it. And when, ultimately, when he saw, but he saw the results. So uh, God rest his soul. I still pray for him and offer mass for him on the day of birth and date of death, and at other times during the year too. So I think he's a great man, a great prelate, a great uh, bishop in the church. Well, very good. Thank you, Father. We answered a lot of emails tonight, covered a lot of ground. So thanks for all of that. Appreciate it, and all of our viewers do too. So, well, Tom, I hope, hope someone some good. And uh, thanks for uh, persevering. Yes, <laughs> very good. Uh, thank you, Father, and thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you. <laughs>